Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us that we might have it this day. And Lord, as we turn our attention now to the preaching of your word, we ask that you would attend the preaching. You would do so by your spirit in our hearts, that you would teach us and train us, correct us, O Lord, even rebuke us for righteousness' sake. O God, do your work in your people, even in I, that we might be made more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, thank you for the book of Exodus. Thank you for the story of deliverance and how it points to the even greater story of our deliverance from sin through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the one who is indeed ours forevermore. Father, bless your people. Help me, your servant. Protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the late 1800s, there was a man, many of you know this name. His name was Dwight Moody, Dwight L. Moody. He was a famous evangelist. In fact, some would say he was the most famous evangelist in the world at this point. People would come from all over the globe to attend his Bible conferences, which he held in Northfield, Massachusetts. Well, one year, a large group of pastors from Europe were among the attendees. They were given rooms in the dormitory of the Bible school, and as was the custom in their home countries, the men would put their shoes outside the doors of their room at night expecting them to be cleaned and polished by the servants at the school. Of course, there were no servants in the American dorm. But as Moody was walking through the halls and praying for his guests, which was actually his custom, when everyone went to bed, he would remain up and walk through the halls of the dorms and pray. He saw the shoes and realized what was happening. He didn't have someone ready to clean the shoes. So he mentioned the situation to some of his students, but none of them offered to help. (laughs) Yeah, that's a big problem you got there, sir. No one offered to help. Without another word, this great evangelist gathered up the shoes and took them back to his own room where he worked late into the night. We might even say early into the morning, diligently cleaning and polishing each pair, praying for the man who wore them and bringing them back so they would be ready to go in the morning. Despite the praise and fame that he had received because of God's blessing upon his life and ministry, despite the fact that these men had traveled halfway across the globe to learn from him, kind of the head of the whole thing, Moody remained a humble man, humble enough to clean the shoes of even his most ardent admirers. Many have said, and I think it rings true today, such humility is a rare commodity. Humility like that 
is rare. The man Moses, who we've spent a lot of time talking about, surely possesses this rare commodity, does he not? I mean, after all, most of you are familiar with Numbers 12.3. Okay, maybe you're not. You can peek over there if you would like. I'll read it for you. This is what Numbers 12.3 says. Now the man Moses was very humble, more humble than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Moses was the most humble man that ever lived, Numbers 12.3 says. That's quite a testimony, right? That's quite a testimony. Wouldn't you want that to be written about you? That you are the most humble person to ever live? (laughs) It's a trick question, right? Because you have to say no. You have to say, no, I don't want that written about me. Because if you say yes, maybe you're not as humble as you think you are. Humility is indeed a rare commodity. As we come this morning to the end of the book of Exodus, I want us to focus in on two events, two events. The first event is that which we have already read from Exodus 34, what's called the shining face of Moses. The second event is chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. We'll read that in a little bit, the last five verses of the book. Now, as I alluded to before we read and prayed, I'm sure you're wondering about chapters 35 through 39, as well as the rest of chapter 40. I thought this church took expository preaching seriously. How's the pastor gonna get away with skipping five and a half chapters? I'm glad you asked. Okay, maybe you didn't, but I'm glad I brought it up. We've already covered that information in chapters 25 through 31. You see, the difference is that while in chapters 25 through 31, you have the instructions for the tabernacle, God telling Moses how he wants the tabernacle to be built, God telling Moses how he wants all the priestly garments to look, God telling Moses how he wants them to be consecrated and set apart, that's there in 25 through 31. You have the instructions and them actually carrying out those instructions. So the instructions are repeated and then them carrying them out here in 35 through 39 in the beginning of chapter 40. And don't get me wrong, it's important to see that Israel does all that they were commanded. In fact, 14 times you'll see through those verses that they did all that they were commanded. And then if you turn over to Leviticus chapter eight, when the priests are finally consecrated seven more times, it says they did all that they were commanded to do. 21 times, three times, seven, it said they did all that they were commanded to do. That, uh, That obedience is important, but there's no need for us to look at all that detail again. If you missed it, you can go online and listen to those sermons. We talked about all of those things. Instead, this morning, I want us to focus on where the people have been and how the journey that lies ahead of them leads us to today and how all of it should move all of us to celebrate the freedom we have in Jesus Christ. So that's why we're gonna look at these two events in particular. So let's start first with just a simple truth. God's glory is humbling. God's glory is, is humbling. If you're taking notes or you just wanna know where we're at along the way, that's our first of three points as we look at these two events. God's glory is humbling. You'll remember that last week we saw how God had renewed his covenant with Israel. 
Remember the covenant that they had broken in their sin with that golden cow, that golden calf, and how God uh, had forgiven them, right? He had forgiven them of their sin uh, through what? The mediatorial work of Moses. Moses interceded on behalf of the people and God forgave them and renewed the covenant. We also saw Moses go back up to Mount Sinai where he was shown a further glimpse of God's glory. Now it's 40 days and 40 nights later as we come to our text. Look at 3428. Moses is gone again. Another 40 days and 40 nights. He now comes down from the mountain, but now there's something different about him. Something different about Moses. Look again at verse 29. It tells us that his skin the skin of his face was shining. Some of you know more about art than I do. In fact, it doesn't take much to know more about art than I do, but maybe you've seen that famous Michelangelo sculpture of Moses. And maybe some of you have seen pictures of it. Maybe other art from the Middle Ages. Have you ever seen that? How does Moses look? He has two horns. Moses is pictured there in Vatican City in that great sculpture above the tomb of Pope Julius II, he's, he's shown with two horns coming from the top of his head. You see paintings from all over this time that show Moses with horns protruding from his head. And people often ask about that. And if you haven't, maybe now you will. Uh, why that? Why does he have horns? Well, it stems from a misinterpretation of the text into the, uh, the Latin, in the old Latin version, based on two related words. You see, instead of translating this into Latin as saying that his face was shining, the Latin version says that he had horns growing out of his face. He had horns growing out of his face. We'll come back to this in a minute because you'll see why they did that. It's obviously been corrected in our interpretation since then, unless somebody is reading from the Vulgate this morning. Uh, you will see that it does say that his face is shining. It's been corrected, but it does kind of add a bit of comedy to the reaction we see from Aaron and all the people in verse 30. How do they react when they see this? They react like someone has two horns coming out of their head, right? <laughs> They're like, whoa, what's happening? They're afraid. They're afraid. We've seen that reaction before, haven't we? Remember when God spoke the 10 commandments from the top of Mount Sinai in the hearing of everyone? How did the people respond? They were afraid. No, no. But what they see in Moses, and this is important for us to grasp, what they see is enough to make them afraid. The radiance coming from Moses is the effect of what he's witnessed. God's glorious presence with him upon the mountain. Remember, Moses had asked, Lord, show me your glory. God didn't show him all of it because Moses wouldn't have survived. But he showed him all that Moses could handle. And this was the result and would continue to be the result. No human had ever communed with God in such a way. And his shining face testified to that truth. There's something else going on here that's important. This event actually stands in opposition to a cultural norm, an ancient Near Eastern cultural norm of that day, particularly in the kings of Mesopotamia and Egypt. Kings would often claim 
to be some type of deity or some type of divinity or one of the many gods. Remember, Pharaoh has done that. Other kings have done this. And what they would do is they would hide themselves away sometimes for multiple weeks at a time. And they would say, I'm going to meet with the gods. And after I've met with the gods, I will be radiant and you can't see me or you will die. And so it was common for kings in this day to do that, hide away, who knows what they did when they were hiding away, but certainly it was a way to mask the truth, right? They could create a legend around themselves. And why did they do that? They did it to build themselves up. They did it to exalt themselves, build up the legends that built up around them. But here, with God actually granting Moses this radiance and granting it to him in plain view of everyone, the millions of Israelites who are here, God is affirming Moses in a way that everyone would have understood. We see that, we see that's kind of weird, right? But in that day, for people to actually see someone come down from meeting with divinity and they're actually shining, that's why they're scared. He really has met with God. Now in allowing him to shine, the message is different. It's not what some of the other kings would have said. Now I'm divine. No, God's not saying, look everyone, Moses is divine. Rather God is saying, this is my mediator. This is the one I've chosen. I've exalted him in your eyes. This is the one you must listen to. Sounds familiar. Before we get to that, the most striking thing about all of this is what the text tells us. Moses is completely clueless about this whole ordeal. It tells us very clearly he had no idea that his face was shining. I mean, everyone's afraid of him, right? Imagine that you come down and everyone's like, whoa, wouldn't you be like, what's wrong with me? All the text tells us, he says, no, come here, come back to me. Come back to me. He's been with God. He has a word from God. And he just wants to tell it to the people. He wants them to hear what God has to say. Evidently he finds out, right? Because what does he do? What does he do after he tells them all that the Lord had spoken to him? It says he covers his face with a veil. He covers his face with a veil. He wants to take the attention away from himself. This is Moses' way of saying, it's not about me. It's about the Lord. It's not about me. It's about God. Ligon Duncan, noted pastor and writer, this is what he says about this. He says, if a modern minister had such an experience of communion with God that his face was shining, everyone would know. He would most certainly be on Oprah the next day, selling books, talking about what he had done. But not Moses, he says. He doesn't even realize it. He doesn't know why everyone is running and scattering as he comes down the mountain. And then Dr. Duncan concludes, show me an arrogant spiritual leader and I'll show you a person who has an immature faith and is unfamiliar with the presence of God. But show me someone who's spending time in God's presence and I'll show you a humble person. Show me someone who spends time with the Lord and you'll see a humble person. Even though Moses has been communing with God 
he remains humble. He remains humble. There's a huge lesson in this. Spend time with the Lord and you will be humbled. Spend time in his word. Spend time in prayer. Spend time with other believers and you will be humbled by God. Moses spent time with the Lord and he can't boast. He remains humble. The Puritans called humility true spiritual greatness. True spiritual greatness. And you can see an example of it right here in Moses. God's glory is indeed humbling. But I don't want to overlook something that I've kind of already said in passing, something obvious and something also important about this passage. And that's our second point this morning, the second simple truth. God's glory is exalting. So God's glory is humbling, number one. Number two, God's glory is exalting. God does indeed exalt Moses here. God does. You know the familiar scripture, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and what? At the proper time, he will exalt you. At the proper time, he will exalt you. Moses has done that. But I want you to take note that the end of Moses' exaltation is not that he, the person, be exalted. That's not the aim. The end of Moses' exaltation is the exaltation of God and the exaltation of God's word. So I mentioned it earlier, I'll, I'll go into more detail here. There's a play on words in the original Hebrew language. And now you understand why that mistake was made uh, in the Vulgate. When it says in verse 29 that Moses' face shone, the word there is karan. It would be transliterated as K-A-R-A-N. The Hebrew word for horn is karen, K-E-R-E-N. So you have K-A-R-A-N and K-E-R-E-N. I'll spare you all the details, but imagine a consonantal language with no vowels. Vowels were added later. It was an audible language mostly, and you could see where they might've been confused between horn and between shining. But that's not even the true play on words here because the true play on words comes when we consider that idol. Remember chapter 32? Remember the idol that the people had constructed? Back in 32, what was it? It was a cow, right? We call it the calf, but it was a cow. It would have been a male cow. It would have been what they knew from Egypt, God of fertility and power, right? And it would have had horns. That cow would have had horns. You see the play on words. The people had made a mediator for themselves out of gold, which was a shiny object a shiny object with horns. That, remember what they said? This is our God. This is the God who will lead us into Canaan. This is our God. What about that cow? It was inanimate, right? It just sat there. It was made from trinkets, jewelry. It couldn't walk. It couldn't talk. It couldn't lead the people. It could not truly mediate for them. But notice, ironically, the very thing that they wanted their handmade mediator to do for them, which was to have God present with them, almost cost them God's presence forever. Yet instead, God proves himself to be gracious and merciful and full of steadfast love. God forgave them. And what does he do as a sign of that? He sends back to them Moses shining with his glory. 
and says, this is my mediator. This is the one. This is the one I've chosen. You see, in the exaltation of Moses, in this process of him glowing or shining, God himself is exalted in glory because this is what God has done, contrary to what the people were doing. This is God's way, not that. But I want you to see that this radiance does so much more than exalt or lift up Moses as the true mediator. What else does it do? It attests to the authority of God's word and the glory of his grace. Moses didn't ask for this radiance. He wasn't responsible for it. In fact, you might think from this passage that the reason Moses veiled his face was to keep from scaring the people, right? He saw the reaction of them, he, he told them, and then he veils his face. Maybe he did that to keep them from being scared. But did you notice from verses 32 and 33 that whenever Moses spoke to the people, when he would go in and see God and come back and speak to them, what did he do? He didn't veil his face, did he? He didn't veil his face to keep them from being scared. He veiled his face after, after he had spoken God's word to them. He only veiled it after he shared the revelation from God. A passage many of you I'm sure are familiar with, 2 Corinthians chapter three, the apostle Paul commenting on the, this event notes that Moses did this so that the people would not see that radiance fade away and then begin to doubt the very lesson that they had learned in seeing the radiance in the first place. You see, this radiance would fade away. And Paul tells us that he covered himself so the people wouldn't see that it was fading. They would remember, this is God who has done this. This is his word. We must obey his word. And so Moses would cover himself so that they would remember the radiance of God and his word. So by seeing God's glory in the face of Moses and by seeing it again and again, when Moses went in to speak with God, the people were reminded that God's word is the absolute authority, that God speaks through his mediator and God wants the people to hear and to obey. And they're reminded that they are subject to God's word as his people in covenant with him. They must believe his word and follow his word as well. So I'll say it again, in the exaltation of Moses, God himself, his grace and his word is exalted in glory as well. So we've seen then that in the shining face of Moses, God's glory is both humbling and exalting. Now let's move to that third point. I want us to see how God's glory is also reassuring. That's our third and final one. God's glory is reassuring. You think about it, put yourself in the sandals of the Israelites. Wouldn't they be assured of God's presence among them every time this happened? Every time Moses went in to speak with the Lord and then he would come out with his face radiating, they would know Moses isn't like those other kings who go in and lie and we never see it, but he comes back out and they see it. Yes, God truly is here. God truly is meeting with Moses. Oh, but God's got so much more in store than just that. He wants them to experience it themselves. And they're going to once that tabernacle is constructed. Turn over to chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. The last five verses of the book. So the people have done 
everything that they were required to do. They've sewn every curtain, cut every piece of wood, overlaid it just as God told them to. And this is what happens. Look at verse 33. We're going to back up one verse. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And Israel as a people is, on one hand, they're facing an uncertain future. It is certain in one sense, right? They know where they're going, but they're facing an uncertain future. But look what they get as they go. They get a huge dose of assurance. Remember, don't forget how the book started. I know it's been many weeks since we started the book of Exodus. Remember, it begins by telling us that many years had gone by since the death of Joseph and a new king had arisen over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And then what happened as a result? The people of Israel were subjected to harsh slavery. And then what did they do? They cried out. They cried out to God. And then in one of the most beautiful passages in all of the book, maybe perhaps all the Bible, we're told that God heard them. They cried out and God heard them and he responded. God had not abandoned them. He had not abandoned his promises to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what does God do? He raises up Moses in the most unexpected way. And he uses Moses and Aaron to, to deliver them from Egypt. But Israel is a stiff-necked and sinful people and they will remain so. History tells us that the golden calf incident of chapter 32, well, some would say it's just the beginning, just one of many sinful failures to come. And though God had told them that he would go with them to Canaan, they certainly needed his assurance, didn't they? I mean, they really messed up in chapter 32. And what did God say? I'm not gonna go with you. Moses intercedes with them and God says, I will go with you in his grace and in his mercy. He doesn't abandon his promise. Would you think that's in the back of their minds? Man, if we mess up again, if we fail again, maybe we'll lose God's presence with us. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute. I should say their sandals for a moment. They needed assurance. Reminds me of our children and grandchildren. They just need that reassuring love, don't they? They need to be reassured. I don't know how many times I've told my kids, there's nothing you can do to change how much I love you. There's a lot you can do that'll make me pretty angry, make me upset. There's things that you can do that will cause you to face consequences and be disciplined, but there's nothing you can do to change how much I love you. I'm just a man. Can I really truly stand behind that? Only by God's grace. But imagine God saying that. I'll always love you. I'll always be with you. My presence will be with you forever. The people needed God's presence and protection. 
even more so. So upon that faithful completion of the tabernacle, according to God's plan, God's glory fills it and rests upon it. We see this again when the temple is built. But here, the picture we get is that it's just full, so full, in fact, so glorious that Moses, who got a glimpse, can't even go near it. That, that's given to you to, for you to understand just how much of the Lord's glory filled this place. Not even Moses, who's had the, the most intimate contact with God that anyone's had to this point, even he can't go in. So verses 36 through 38, God tells us he does what he promised to do. He goes with them from this place and throughout all their journeys. When it was time for them to go forward, his glorious presence went ahead of them. If they were to remain in a particular place, then God's glory remained there. The people knew exactly what God's will for them was to do and where to go. Go where God goes. And they get to see it visibly. When God goes, we'll go. When he stays, we'll stay. Now, you know, this is just a picture. Even this is just a picture of what we now experience through God's true and final mediator, Jesus Christ. All of this should sound a little familiar to you if you are familiar with the gospels. I won't read it all, but in Luke chapter nine, verses 28 through 36, we have one of two recordings of what is called the transfiguration. And if you remember here, Jesus invites three of his disciples to go with him upon a mount, to go up high. You know this story? So Peter goes, John goes, and James goes. He brings them up there. And there happens to be two people appear, Moses and Elijah, and then before their very eyes, the disciples, Jesus is transfigured. He begins to radiate in the fullness of his glory, so much so that I really love the disciples' response. It's good for us to be here. Let us make tents for you. I don't want you to go anywhere. This is too good, they say. Yeah, it was good for them to be there. But so transforming and so terrifying was it if you read at the very end in verse 36, they didn't tell anyone about it till later. They didn't tell anyone about it till later. I don't think anyone would believe them. Put yourself there in their sandals. Seeing the son of God in all his glory must have been a wonderful sight. And if you know that passage, you'll know that the father spoke from heaven to them just as he did on the day that Jesus was baptized according to John. God says, this is my chosen beloved. This is the Messiah. Do you know what he says next? Listen to him. Obey him. Do you see the connection? God is exalting the mediator and the word. And in Jesus, he's both. He's the word of God the very son of God, the very word of God incarnate is transformed in his glory, shining and radiating. And he says, this is my chosen one, my beloved one. Listen to him. Perhaps some of you who are familiar with John six, all the many following Jesus and Jesus just keeps saying hard thing after hard thing after hard thing. And the people all leave him and all that's left is the 12 and Jesus turns to the 12 and says, will you leave me too? Do you remember what they say? To where shall we go? 
You alone have the words of eternal life. Maybe Peter was actually listening there at the mount. Listen to him. Brothers and sisters living on this side of the cross, and we're actually one step closer to seeing God in all of his glory in heaven. We have a greater assurance than even Israel had. We might say it'd be great if we could just see God's glory come down and lead us everywhere we're supposed to go every day. He's given you something greater. Paul points to this in 2 Corinthians 3, and we're gonna read it together in just a minute as our affirmation of faith. Paul says, he takes this account and he he takes it and says, because we've beheld Jesus, who's the very image and glory of God, there's, there's no need for a veil anymore. It doesn't fade away. We're to see him in his splendor now. Through his work, he set us free from our sin. He's given us a greater freedom than that which the Israelites experienced. Jesus has set us free and he's given us himself. God has given us himself. He's given us his spirit. He's he's put a seal upon our heart, guaranteeing that we do belong to him and that we we will be his forever. He'll go with us wherever we go. When you go with God's spirit, you go with God's presence. And God works on us by his spirit. Paul says he's transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. And we have a blessed privilege to behold that glory as we commune with him. Well, how do I commune with him? In prayer, in worship, in the sacraments, and in fellowship with one another as members of the body of Christ. We have a greater assurance than even the Israelites had. I love the song we just sang. His love is our reward. Fear is gone. Our hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. So let me summarize this way. God's glory is indeed humbling. It is humbling. As we encounter his glory through Jesus Christ, it should and it will change us. It'll work in and through us to make us more like Jesus. And if we're gonna be more like Jesus, then we need to be humble as he is humble. God's glory is indeed exalting, just as God has highly exalted his name and his word through Christ, his son, and his mediation for us. So we also exalt God's glory when we are obedient to Jesus and his word. And God's glory is indeed assuring. Because you know what? Like Israel, we fail. We have failed. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his presence, just like Israel. But God has given us his spirit. And as his church, we are the earthly tabernacle. God is always present with us. He always is and he always will be. So think about Israel now. They're leaving Mount Sinai to head out on this uncertain, yet we know the story, right? We know he promised to bring them to the promised land and he does. But you know that for them, it's uncertain and it's gonna be tough. How about you? When I give the benediction and you head out these doors, what are you walking into? To where are you going? How uncertain is it? Maybe you've got today figured out and you're like, but I have no idea about tomorrow or the next tomorrow or the tomorrows after that. You have a greater hope and a greater assurance than Israel.
Because here's God's promise to you. He will be with you wherever you go and he will bring you safely through. Amen and amen.